right now, I think that the question is, is Bitcoin at a stage of maturity or cryptocurrency at a state of maturity that they're ready for kind of a very advanced and regulated market to kind of to, to step in and take a role? And I think that it's that's a question because, first of all, it's a global it's a global phenomenon, not a U.S. phenomenon. And so therefore, who is the regulator and how do you regulate it properly? You don't have to be playing the markets every day to know that stocks have been doing very well lately. Heck, not just lately, for about nine years now. That means you might be hearing a bit more about stock exchanges, which brings us to my next guest. Adina Friedman is the first woman to lead a global stock exchange. She's the CEO of NASDAQ, a job she's held for about a year. To get there, she's had to chart a path where there was none. For example, it meant choosing what was right for her family over what seemed like the more obvious career decision, and making it all work anyway. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but Overcast, Stitcher, Google Play, and more mainly, I just want you to subscribe so every episode will come to you. I sat down with Adina Friedman. Where else? At the NASDAQ in New York's Times Square. We talked about the roads not taken and the new landscape for women entrepreneurs. Here's Adina Friedman. Well, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. And so I thought that was just my destiny. And I always looked up into space and enjoyed science um, up until I kind of went into the more advanced physics and chemistry and then I thought hmm you know maybe I should I'm destined to do something else um, so I now, was really that just because it wasn't <laughs> fun or you know I just I think that I realized that the that what my skills were more geared towards was I'm a very practical person hmm. and I, I decided that I could get a lot of the benefits of feeling like I'm in space. I learned how to fly when I was in college hmm. um, and try to kind of just the Cessnas, you know, yeah. single engines, um, planes. But I, I did enjoy the idea of being up in the air and seeing the world from a different perspective. But I also realized that my brain works in very practical ways. So <laughs> business is probably a better, a better way for me to use my skills. Tell me about learning to fly in college. What makes you decide? I mean, a lot of people learn to drive right before college. I didn't learn to drive until right after college. Right. So you're obviously way ahead of me. What, was that something that was part of your college experience or just something you decided to do at the same time? I just happened to do it at the same time. So there was an airport about five minutes away from campus. Which was where? Uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts. I went to Williams College. Okay. So a beautiful airfield right in the mountains and very easy to get to, very easy to take lessons, and frankly, pretty inexpensive as compared to any other major city. And so it made it so that it was affordable, fun, and of course, college is a time when you do actually have some time on your hands to be able to you know, find other passions, and that was something I really wanted to do. So I started when I was in a freshman, and I got my um, pilot's license when I was a, like early in my senior year. Was that something that a lot of students were doing, or is that a little no. unusual? I, I was the yeah. only student at that time. <laughs> um, how, how did you, how did, what's the process you went through? Your parents were like, yeah, of course, mm -hmm. go fly. How did well, they always knew that I had this thing about, you know, wanting to be an astronaut was a kid, when right. I was a kid. So I think they preferred the idea of me going and learning how to fly than going into space. So, right. so, so they were kind of saying, sure, atmosphere. that sounds okay. great as compared to the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they did. They were actually excited for me to learn how to do it. And your uh, fascination with space wasn't just grounded in reality and the practical you're also a bit of a Star Wars fan and I a Trekkie. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a science fiction f 
freak, I guess you could say. I love science fiction, yeah. What did you think of The Last Jedi? Have you seen it yet? I have. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot, I have to say. I, I mean, I know that there's lots of people who kind of look on either side of it. Mm -hmm. I was entertained for over two hours. It was almost two and a half hours. <laughs> um, I found the storyline... Um, I found it very compelling in terms of how they intermixed the three storylines together, and I really liked the the you know kind of the intermix of the two main characters as they were kind of their minds were melded and how they were looking at the world from two different perspectives. I thought it was great. I thought the sort of plot around women in leadership mm -hmm. for this cultural moment was particularly interesting, and it, it took me days afterward to digest it. Um, because I think it cut across not just the decisions that the women were making uh, in the movie and how they were mm -hmm. pushing back against the traditional male bravado, but also about time horizons. And are you making decisions for the near term or for the long term? And, and how does strategy play out? I, mm -hmm. I wonder, did, did that occur to you too? <laughs> well, I <laughs> would I say that odd? looking at it as kind of making sure that you're making the right long-term decision as opposed to the impetuous decision that seems like, the, like, like, let me just go and, as they said, let me go use my gun and go kind of shoot something, as opposed to thinking strategically about what's going to best position all the people, you know, on that ship. I think that that was a good interplay and a good counter, kind of a, a very good way to have that interplay on that in that plot line. In terms of it being a woman who was pushing back on the guy, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't put too much into that. I think it should be that they're that should be the case whether the, you know, sometimes the woman's going to be making the impetuous decision and the guy's going to have to make the long-term decision and vice versa. So I, I didn't necessarily look at it as a gender thing. Yeah, um, but it, it, I, I think there were a number of things kind of in that movie about the way you assume things are going to go that, that play counter. And I thought it was interesting that gender started to play. And I like, well. I think Ray is amazing. I think Ray is such a wonderful role model for girls. I think she's just such a, you know, just this beacon of strength and, um, and looking at an independence and the way that she carries herself and the way that she plays in that, in that role is just spectacular. It's wonderful for young girls. You see all these girls now over, you know, Halloween playing Ray, and you're just, it's so great to see these, these girls looking up to her. A few weeks ago, Stitch Fix went public here mm -hmm. at the NASDAQ. Uh, Katrina Lake, the founder and CEO of Stitch Fix, I believe the youngest founder to take her company public ever. And I, I thought it was quite an interesting moment, both of you here at the same time. And I, I wonder, as you reflect on female entrepreneurs at this mm -hmm. point in time, um, what advice would you give to female entrepreneurs who are hoping to take their companies public on the NASDAQ right now in terms of um, leadership focus, uh, in terms of skills to work on? Is it any different from what you'd give to a male entrepreneur? I would say being an entrepreneur takes incredible tenacity and incredible focus and uh, a great vision and an ability to execute against that vision. That is what every entrepreneur needs to have in terms of skills as they take their company to the next level and make it so that it's a public company. And I think Katrina is just a great, you know, she's, she symbolizes all of those. She's incredibly analytical, she's incredibly focused, and she has had a vision and she's been a, a very, very focused on executing against that vision and she's built a great team around her. So she is, a, you know, kind of an emblem of very strong entrepreneurship and the, and the fact that she's a woman is just an extra bonus that allows other women to realize that they, it's possible. Mm. 
about 15 years ago, I think there was a, a moment that seems to me to be pretty interesting in your career. NASDAQ used to be based in DC. I believe you were working for NASDAQ at the time and moved, but you didn't move. Right. Talk about that. Yeah, so that, that is interesting actually, because that, I would say, some gender played a role in that decision. So I had two young, young children at the time, and they were very happily in school, um, and in a good school. And my husband had a great job where he had a lot of flexibility in his job. So he was able to actually play a bigger role in, in raising the kids. And uh, disrupting that to kind of take them up here to New York, where it would have been new schools, new job for my husband that probably would not have had the same flexibility. Um, and it just was not the right thing for our family. And at that point, I had to go to the people I work for and say, look, I love it here. I love to, to continue my career here, but I'm going to keep my base in D.C. and I'll be in New York anytime you need me to be. Hmm. And that actually, it worked well. And it was very interesting because... Was it a hard sell? You know, it wasn't a hard sell at the time because there was a lot of the operations of NASDAQ were going to remain in D.C. It wasn't that we were moving all the people. So the business I was running was still run out of D.C. And in fact, it still is based <laughs> primarily in, in the Rockville area. So it was a, easier then because of the role that I had. When I took the corporate strategy role with Bob, we had one conversation about it. And then at the end of it, he said, you know what? I'm never going to ask you again to move to New York as long as I can reach you whenever I need to. But he and did you can ask be, you to move to New York. Once. Okay. <laughs> Early on. Uh -huh. And then, you know, he then said, I'm not going to ask again because as long as I can reach you and as long as you're here when you need to be, everything's going to be great. And you know what? He was true to his word to this day. And, and as a result, our kids were able to work their way through, stay in a stable environment in the city that they, were, they grew up in. My husband continued to have even more flexibility to the point where he's now an artist. Mm. And I was able to continue to advance my career. Are you still based out of D.C.? On the weekends, yes. Okay. Um, do, how do you prepare for that kind of a conversation when you are going to present an alternate plan from the plan mm -hmm. that the company has for you and maybe everybody else? You're going to mm -hmm. ask to be special. Yeah. Well, the big thing is you have to start with how are you going to make it work for the company? So either the answer has to be nothing will change, everything will, for the, from the company's perspective, you will see no, no material difference, or it is the company will be better off because I'm putting myself in this situation or I'm asking for something different. You can't look at it only from your own perspective. You have to look at it from the company's perspective too and, and then have that dialogue with your manager focusing on why the, either the company benefits or the company does not, is not harmed by it. Hmm. Did you know that going in or did somebody have to give you that advice? I have to say I, I, I learned it early, and the reason I learned it early was um, so two years after, I, or a year after I started at NASDAQ, they asked me to take a new job, and it happened to be at that moment that I was pregnant, but I had just found out. So I decided to let them know that that was pregnant right after. <laughs> they said, here, we're offering you this new role, and I said, I just want to make sure you know that I'm pregnant. And they're like, okay, let's work on that, right? So and what year is that? That was 1995. Okay. Or 1994 um, was when I found out I was pregnant. I'm trying to think how, how progressive we are in corporate America in 1994. I would say, well, first of all, my, my boss was amazing. He was amazing. <laughs> he didn't even, like, flinch. And he said, okay, let's make this work. And so then we worked through it as to what that would look like. And I actually was, went part-time after I came back. And we then made, it, made sure that the new role was kind of how are we going to work it, what, was, what were my hours going to be, how was I going to make it work for the company. 
And I had to learn very early, it's all about making sure that they feel comfortable that it's going to work for the company. And if that's the case, and I'm a high performer and someone that's worth investing in, then they'll make, make it work for me too, right? What did you think when you heard about or read Sheryl uh, Sandberg's book, Lean In, which brings up many of these themes, the idea that hey, don't leave before you leave, uh, which you didn't mm -hmm. do. You didn't say, ah, oh, well, I'm pregnant, so maybe I shouldn't take this job. Um, you know, that didn't even enter my psyche. Okay. <laughs> really? Okay. No. I said, okay, we got to figure out how to make this work. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I, think, uh, I think at the end of the day, I actually agree with many of the things that are in Cheryl's book, Alina. And I think also, by the way, Option B is a great book as well. It's mm. a totally different book, but also a very important read. So in terms of Lean In, I think that the key is just never underestimate yourself, you know, and if you are, as I said, a high performer and you're worth investing in and you find ways to make it work for the company, they'll find a way to make, way to make it work for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the big lesson that I learned throughout my entire career. I'm not sure, I mean, it's, it sounds like from the very beginning you were pretty focused on uh, seizing opportunities. But were there points, I mean, I know when I, when I talked to my wife about career, she said, you know, if you had told me going in, I thought you were a newspaper reporter. <laughs> if I had known that you were going to be in TV and we were going to move to New York, I, I think she's joking. But are, are there points when you are kind of negotiating a career path with a partner where you sort of have to go, okay, this is different perhaps than we mm -hmm. thought or than I thought this was going to be? How do right. we kind of reposition us? Did you have a moment like that or was it always pretty clear and Adina wants to be CEO of something, and so that's... No, no, I think that it was definitely a dialogue with my husband all the way through. So I think we also both, you know, as a, my, my career was advancing in one, in one direction in certain ways, and his career was advancing in certain ways, we also were very true to ourselves in terms of what do we want out of life? I'm a very type A, very driven person. And my husband is much more of a family-oriented, you know, more relaxed. Um, and in terms of his own career, he didn't see advancement as his, the only goal that he had. You know, yeah. he definitely saw it as work is part of life. Um, wor you know, work isn't life. You know, you, you have, there are other things outside of work. And I see it as kind of, I, I'm passionate about what I do. I love to work. And I love to have, I love my family, and I have two priorities in life. But he, you know, our priorities just were slightly different. And you know what? It melded very well together. So the, we definitely had conversations. There was never, ever any contention or difficult decisions we had to make in the process. It all just kind of flowed naturally based on our personalities and our interests. Hmm. I want to shift again and talk about technology, because you mentioned uh, that being a core part of NASDAQ's mission. And right now, we've gone relatively rapidly from a, a period where um, public markets and, and stock trading and all of that was kind of walled off and you had to get on the phone with somebody who could do that for you to people became used to doing things through a web browser to now I can do a lot on my phone um, and we're moving into an era where you're going to be talking to you know your Echo or to Siri mm -hmm. or to your Google Assistant and perhaps either doing trades or getting information about businesses how quickly are we going to get to whatever that next phase is? And what are some of the opportunities and, and perhaps dangers that you see at that mm -hmm. point? Well, the first thing is the last 20 years have been amazing in terms of the advancement of technology and how it's changed the industry. So when I started at NASDAQ in 93, we were really the only U.S. electronic stock market. Um, and it was right before the commercial internet had really been launched. So in 1995, the first online trading venue came alive. And it 
completely democratized trading around the United States. It made it so a retail person, you know, anyone could come in and, and, and trade a stock um, and have total control over that experience. And it just completely changed the game. So that was an amazing transformation of an industry. And then since then, it's just that technology has continued to advance itself. So now a lot of trading decisions are, you know, made by computers or at least influenced by computers. And it isn't even a person necessarily kind of having to press every button anymore. Mm. So, so then you take it ahead another 10 years and you say, what is it really going to look like? And you've got the uh, advancements of the cloud. And so how will trading occur? Will it be you know, sitting in, an, in a data center or will, it, will the trading systems actually be out really cloud-driven so that you kind of create more of a platform and a more of a global platform for trading? What do you think? I believe that it will, in fact, go towards the cloud and that there's more of a platform experience that people should have in interacting with the markets. What does the cloud mean? Well, is, it, is it a private cloud that you operate? Is it... A a cloud that a Microsoft or an Amazon or a Google or an Oracle is operating with certain walls around it, safeguards that you're comfortable with? I would say you can, you can structure it either way, but certainly the public cloud providers are incredibly advanced in being able to create kind of what I call a private cloud environment within their organizations. And they have access to incredible technology themselves and it, um, incredible IT security capabilities and other things that actually can continue to advance our abilities to run these things in a safe um, and, and, and certainly fast and advanced way. So that's kind of the platform and the foundation that we see developing for exchanges going forward. How long do you and think? And for interactions with the exchanges. Before I would say NASDAQ with, is on somebody's cloud. Well, I would, I would say the next decade will be a very, very important decade for us to see that kind of advancement. When in that decade it occurs, not sure, but we certainly are obviously building towards that future. I think the second thing is you've got so much data now accessible and available and instantly um, kind of sitting on your machine that allows you to make even smarter and smarter investment decisions. And how do you, though, tap that data, make it, take it from being data to being intelligence? And so the machine intelligence and machine learning that is coming into play to be able to um, take all that data and turn it into something that you can turn into an action is incredible. The speed at which that's happening is incredible. And so that, I think, is going to be democratized over time as well. Today, there's very advanced hedge funds that focus on that. But I believe over time, more and more investors will have access to advanced algorithmic um, and um, analytics that I think that will be uh, important for their investment decisions. I see you getting a lot of questions about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, whether you're in Europe or here, on our air, et cetera. Um, and, and at what point NASDAQ will be uh, doing more with Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies? Where are you with that right now? Well, we've been much more focused on the blockchain, which is the underlying technology, to the Bitcoin, um, or I would say to cryptocurrencies. We see cryptocurrencies as a very nascent asset class. Uh, obviously, there's a, you know, it's a, it's a fast-evolving environment. It's unregulated. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the resiliency factor, the fairness factor, the things that regulation bring into the markets may not exist yet um, in, in the crypto space. And so... Is that one of the the main things that causes you to go slowly? It's like, uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, it, it seems like if an, if an Asian regulator expresses caution, 
the price of Bitcoin drops precipitously and then a number of other cryptocurrencies with it. Um, does that cause you to be cautious about how much you invest in it or exactly whether consumers understand what they're buying when they... Well, our in? role in the economy is to create a fair and efficient market for any asset class. Yeah. And right now, I think that the question is, is Bitcoin at a stage of maturity or cryptocurrency at a state of maturity that they're ready for kind of a very advanced and regulated market to kind of to, to step in and take a role? And mm. I think that it's that's a question because, first of all, it's a global it's a global phenomenon, not a U.S. phenomenon. And so, therefore, who is the regulator and how do you regulate it properly? And the second thing is making sure that the um, that the currency or the, the asset class is ready for that level of oversight. Uh, and I would say I think that the jury's out right now as to kind of what the stage of maturity of that asset class is. What needs to fall in place before you say, it's ready. Boy, I was waiting for that to happen, and, and there it goes. Now we can look really seriously about this, and it'll, it'll probably happen within three to six months. Well, I certainly think that government decisions and looking at how the government is reacting with the U.S. government and other governments and how they're making decisions around their policies around cryptocurrencies is going to be important for our education, as opposed to potentially putting in some sort of derivative product that might be um, uh, eligible for trading as opposed to running an exchange itself. So I you don't want to get too far ahead of the things. SEC. Yeah, it's a matter of making sure that you are staying lockstep with the regulators uh -huh. and also getting comfortable around the risk management that we would want to put in place to be able to support some sort of you know, crypto trading in some way. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Nordics, we actually do have, we have a, part, a, a company that has listed two ETNs, um, exchange-traded notes, on the Nordic exchanges, and they are trading on our exchange. And we are working with our regulators to make sure they're properly surveilled and all of those things. So we are gaining some experience there. But beyond that, I think the question is, you know, how would, how, what's the best way for us to get involved? Hmm. And have you learned anything from that, what you've seen so far in the Nordics, positive or negative? I think that I would say, I mean, we all know it's a very volatile asset class right now. So mm -hmm. making sure you're managing that volatility properly and um, you're putting risk, proper risk management around that's really important. How much time do you spend in Silicon Valley these days? I spend a fair amount of time there. I spend time there visiting our, our listed clients, meeting with companies that are thinking to go public, but also meeting with other companies that might bring technologies that are relevant to us. How much did Facebook's experience going public shape the way you have conversations in the Valley about what the process is, what people need to be prepared for, how founders and executives teams uh, sh should, should frame that? Well, I think the first thing is that over the last six years, NASDAQ has done a lot to make sure that the IPO experience here is world-class in every way. Mm -hmm. And we have partnered very much with the underwriters and with institutional investors to build a technology, but also a, a holistic process and experience that's superb for the companies and for the investors. What would you point to as a couple of the major things that you've added on or changed that, that have made a difference? So we've created something called the Book Viewer, which gives the lead underwriter a full view into the auction and how the auction is unfolding in real time. I've that allows, to see that a You've seen times that, here. exactly. Yeah. So it allows them to understand the supply and demand mm -hmm. and be able to understand exactly how the, how the auction is developing. They then can go out and talk to clients and make sure the clients are bringing in the order flow um, that will maximize their chance of getting an execution or will position them the way that they want to be positioned into the auction. All the other members that are also participating in the auction get to see all of their own orders and how they would interact with the auction too as it's unfolding so they can manage their order flow. So it's very advanced, it's very transparent, and it, everything's in the hands of the lead underwriter. So that's a big difference from you know, how it existed before. 
But also, I'd say in general, I think that um, the IPO experience has advanced a lot in the last six years. I think that the Jobs Act has given companies the choice to stay private longer, mature as private companies, and be as ready as possible for the public markets. And I generally see that as a good thing. <laughs> um, I also think that they understand their obligation to um, kind of how they communicate the future of their business and how they communicate their story. I think that they've come a long way in understanding how to do that with investors as well. What does Adina Friedman go to for advice? Uh, I actually primarily go to my father, I would say. And then there are a couple people, you know, people that I've known throughout my life that only two, frankly, that I, I won't mention, um, that I do go to for specific advice. Yeah. How do you pick those people? Number one, they have a range of experience that's relevant to the decision I have to make. And number two, I know that they'll stay, everything, every conversation I have with them is confidential. Mm. Um, what sorts of issues do you find yourself going to advice for? I mean, I think there are some areas where we get to know our guts are pretty good mm -hmm. or, you know, I, I can study and bring a whole bunch of information to bear and that will be my, my guiding force. But other things where it's like, I, I really need to talk to somebody. Well, I would say the first thing I'm very fortunate to have is you know, a great team of people that we work together. So I, I'm certainly able to have very open conversations with everyone who's on my senior leadership team about key issues that face NASDAQ. In terms of facing myself and the decisions I make in life, I would say my husband, my parents, they play a huge role in that process. And otherwise, you do try to seek out that one person that you think will give you a different perspective than the one that you have to mm -hmm. force you to think more, more deeply about whatever decision you're having to make. Mm. Uh, this is a time when we're asking questions about leaders and about culture that maybe we haven't asked at this velocity in the past. The Me Too movement comes to mm -hmm. mind. Uh, culture in workplaces comes to mind. When you're the leader of an organization with the kind of visibility that NASDAQ has, how do you approach that? How do you kind of get the sense of at the ground level what the culture feels like to your employees and what might need to shift or be emphasized differently? No, it's a great question. So the first thing is you have to make sure that we are a global business. We have, we have employees in over 30 countries today. So mm. we have to make sure that we understand we have really strong leaders in all of the major locations and that they're there not only to communicate to the employees, but to hear from the employees and bring in information, ideas, issues up through the organization. That's number one. Number two, we communicate a lot. How do you do that though? Because yeah. I, I find that sometimes organizations are used to measuring leaders' effectiveness based on a set of metrics that are perhaps easier to see on paper but they don't really get a sense of, of how they're treating people. Right. Or maybe previous leadership hasn't emphasized that in the same way in the culture yeah. and times have shifted and now yeah. it needs to be measured. So we, have, we do have um, a survey that we put out every year where we, we, um, we survey every single employee in NASDAQ and it's on multiple dimensions of the experience. So it's obviously on kind of the hard elements of just, do you feel you're properly rewarded? Do you feel that you understand the strategy of the company? So those are the softer ones. Do you, how do you rate your own direct management how do you rate the manager above that person? And how do you rate senior leadership across a whole spectrum of things in terms of, and, and, and you know, the integrity of the company, the ethics of the company? Those are all questions. We got over 80% participation in our survey this year. Mm. Um, and we read through and we get a ton of forensic analysis on the back of it by location 
or by different demographics or by departments so that we can really understand what's going on and what trends, how does has it changed from the year before. And you can uncover a lot in a survey like that as long as people are honest and it is completely anonymous so that they feel that they can be honest. So that's one thing. But it's even just as important when I go and visit a country that I, or, or a state where we have an office, I go and meet with people and I just hang out. You know, you just, you just hang out. You know, you don't try to do a speech and then disappear. You try to talk to people, walk the halls a little bit. And I encourage my entire team to do that too because that's when a lot of things bubble up. And then every Monday, our entire senior leadership team, about 45 of us, get together every single Monday for an hour and a half and we talk about what's going on inside the company. Mm. So. I want to finally ask about investing, ground-level investing, um, individual investing. There have been a number of studies done about the differences between how women invest and men invest, but w one of the primary issues we see driven is that um, women tend to make some pretty good investment decisions when they're making those decisions, but women often don't take exercise enough agency in making an investment plan. You know, perhaps if they marry, they're married, they, mm -hmm. they'll leave that to their partner. Um, what advice do you have on how to shine more light on that issue or ways that are effective that are encouraging women um, to uh, take more advantage of, of resources out there, get more involved directly in finances? Yeah, I think the first thing is there are so many, a lot of people are just intimidated by it. And I'm you know, I mean, I'm women and, by exactly, it. Sure, I was going to say yeah. women and men are kind of intimidated <laughs> by the, the, but the perceived complexity of getting into the investment space. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is you can make it as complex as you want it to be, or you can make it really simple. Mm -hmm. And if you really are feeling that way, finding an advisor that you trust is, some, I think, the first step. So find someone that maybe that other people that you know use to help with financial advice or that your family has used in the past or anyone who can at least help you get started. So that's the first thing is there are some great advisors out there. Do your research before you hire them. The great thing about the internet is everything is now known about everyone. <laughs> so you can do some work, background work, um, and find some that you trust. And then start down that path and start small. You know, I've got you know, this savings. I want to try to figure out how I can save for the next 15 years. I, you know, I don't want to lose money, you know, but I, I wouldn't mind making a little bit more or I'm willing to take some more risk on this. I really want to try to kind of shoot for the stars and, and work with an advisor to try to figure out what your goals are. It's not, it's, it really isn't, it's, as, it's about as hard as that, right? So it's not that hard. It's just a matter of taking the time out of your day, putting on your calendar, which by the way, it's hard for me to do too. <laughs> My assistant is always very good about making sure there's a little bit of time carved out for all of that. And so that you make sure that you kind of make it part of your life. How young do you start with the kids? Like when did, yeah. you, when did you first sit down with you know, your kids and say, we're going to buy our first stock today? What would you? So 16, but not real stocks. So we started okay. on Investopedia. And my son expressed an interest first. So that's important that they have an interest or they at least want it. They're curious enough you to want to know. don't drag them and say, we're going to buy nope. some stock. Pick one. <laughs> and so the first thing is we start with fake money and fake investments. And we learn how to read a financial table of what is a price to earnings ratio? Why is one higher than the other? Um, what's the difference? What's the yield? you know, percentage, why does that matter? You know, those types of things, try to explain it. What is a stock versus a bond? And why are those two things, why do they have a different risk profile? So try to get some basics. 
and then let them make every decision that they make, like no involvement whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then, but you ask them a lot of questions. So when you made that decision, did you look at the annual report? Did you just, you know, look at a number and decide, go for it? Did you say, oh, I bought shoes last week, so I'm going to go buy that shoe company? Whatever. What was your decision? And allow them to learn and then allow them to experience whether or not it did well or not. And when they're ready, I, we did take, a, when, when our older son was 18, we said, okay, here's some savings that we started for you when you were a baby, a small amount of money. Let's open an online trading account and allow you to use, you know, this is yours to to grow or to lose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, he had to get every trade approved by me because I have to go get it approved by the company. So, <laughs> yes. so I did know what he was doing. What did so. he pick? Do you remember? Um, I do. He actually did really well. I'm, I'm not going to say specific stocks. I have to, I, I won't do that. But, <laughs> but he did. He picked some very specific names when I asked him. He read the annual report. Um, he'd actually tried to understand what the company did. And they weren't just all retail companies. It was actually like an insurance company, an investment, like a, a, an investment bank, um, and a couple of retail companies. Well, fantastic. Great advice. And thank you for sitting down with me and sharing all that. My thanks to Adina Friedman. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There, I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox, or go to Facebook or Twitter and search for John Fort, and you'll figure out what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.